turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel. <laughs> That's Samuel and chapter together. Chapter 7. You can put your finger there. I'm going to get there quickly tonight. So let's ask the uh, Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we, we bow before your presence here. We're happy to know that you are here by your Holy Spirit and you can help us understand the word that we're looking at tonight. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would show us Jesus and his love and how we might serve God in more efficient ways and live God-pleasing lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We pick up at verse 1. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. And so we're going to pause there. If you'd like to take notes, you could put uh, Roman numeral number one, too hot to handle. And we're going to talk about how the ark ended up in this man's home here in Kiriath-Jerim. How it got there, you'll remember the ark is now being moved from where the cows had uh, delivered it, special delivery last week. Uh, the ark of the covenant is now out of enemy hands. Uh, you'll remember that the Philistines had to learn a big lesson. Uh, do not mess with the most high God. And now, uh, after routing the Jewish army uh, in battle, the Philistines thought they could keep the Ark of the Covenant, which is up again for you to see, uh, just as an illustration. They thought that they could keep the Ark of the Covenant as a souvenir. You know, uh, we, we chased the uh, Israelites away and they left it in the field and finders keepers. And, and so we're going to take it. And we, we realize that they worship and they think your presence is associated with that. But, you know, God gave our God gave us victory. We're taking this thing, parking it in their temple. And you'll recall what happened there. So Wherever the ark was in Philistine territory, deadly outbreaks of bubonic plague, or so commentators feel, with the rats and the tumors and the death and the infections and the panic. After seven months of that, you'll recall that the Philistines were ready to send the ark back to Israeli territory. Um, plagues really helped the Egyptians, you recall, to let his people go. And plagues also helped the Philistines to let his ark go. And by the way, when the Lord brings plagues and really strong, harsh punishment, never forget it's with a redemptive purpose in mind. For the scriptures say that God is not willing that anyone perish, but that all men come to the knowledge of the truth and are saved. That is first. Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. And so we know his heart. So when we see it, he's not just punishing them. He is trying to show them a lesson, give the ark back. Uh, but he's also wanting them to repent. He wants them to be saved, just like everybody else. 
So as you recall, the tumor-ridden, uh, plague-infested Philistines hitched the ark of the Lord to a couple of dairy cows, saying in their hearts, like, this is ever going to happen. Like, it's going to, well, point it in Israeli territory, and, we'll, we'll, you know, it'll take a miracle to get two dairy cows to go leave their calves and, and carry an ark uh, and a cart that they've never pulled before, you know, but, you know, they were wrong again, and miraculously, the cows made a beeline to a Levite town where the Levites were able to handle the ark. So there was their miracle. Did they repent? No. A lot of people say, you know, show me a miracle, and then I'll repent. And I always say, no, you won't. The Bible says you won't. The Bible says, you know, if you don't repent at the preaching of the word of God. It won't matter if you know somebody who died and they came back from the dead and told you all about it, you wouldn't believe. That's what the Bible says, Luke chapter 16, Jesus telling that story. And so they had their miracle, but I uh, guess apparently most of them went on uh, unchanged. And so uh, there was great joy. So the ark comes back now to the territory. So I'm trying to explain to you why it's being moved from Beth Shemesh, where they dropped it off, the cows dropped it off, and everybody's having a great big party. There's the ark is back, right? And, and there was great celebration in this Jewish town until, in careless presumption, as you recall, 70 celebrants, the Jews, uh, were struck dead because uh, they took the mercy seat off the top of the ark and gazed inside. And they knew that that was a no-no. But you know what? They were in a spirit of uh, celebration. God is for us. God just did a miracle. And they get all wrapped up in that. So there, we can be careless in our approach to God because we get uh, kind of misinformed or we, we get misled thinking that his grace means that we can just do whatever we want. I like this quote here. Sometimes the most vulnerable time for a Christian or ministry is when they are being blessed. Unfortunately, enjoying God's favor can lead men to a carelessness and a presumption that ends up spoiling the blessing. And that's kind of what happened there thinking, wow, look, God brought it back, and, and it doesn't matter, and praise God, he's for us, and his grace covers everything. Let's just take off the mercy lid and look inside, because we're like this with God. We're his chosen people, and then 70 of them, bam, bang, gone. You know, So don't let God's blessing uh, obscure your desperate need to continue to revere him in holiness and to see your great need to depend on him in all situations and be holy. I like Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, where it says, It's better to go to a funeral where there's mourning than to a banquet where everyone's having a good time because at the funeral you see the destiny of all men and the living take truths to heart. And so a paraphrase of that would be, a 30-minute visit to a cemetery will be more beneficial to your soul than an entire afternoon at a carnival. So the 70s slipped into carnival mentality, 
It doesn't matter. God is for us. Let's do whatever we want. You know, he'll forgive us. And bam, 70 of them fell from the Ferris wheel right on to the pavement. <clears throat> Let's move on. So here in verse 1, you have some friends now. Now, this is how we're moving this from Beth Shemesh, where God apparently wanted it to be. The guy said, you know what? The 70 guys are still on the pavement. This is no fun. Uh, you know, we really don't want to walk the line of tension between being privileged with the presence of God, but also obliged to live in a reverent and wise way, in a holy way before him. So they call up their friends 10 miles to the north at, at this place called uh, Kiriath-Jerim. And they come down. They're also Levites. They're trained in how to deal with the ark. And so they're asking uh, for the responsibility to be taken from them. Now, before we move on, I want to say, how's, how about this idea in, in verse 1? It goes, the ark of the covenant goes to somebody's house. Think about that. Think about all the history, if you've been here from the beginning, from Genesis all the way, and what, what that ark is all about, and his presence, and his holiness, and the power, and the glory that's been associated with that thing. Let's park it in Abinadab's house. He said, where are we going to put it? We're not going to put it in the barn with the animals. It's going to have to come inside my house. So every day, where did they park it? In the living room or the kitchen area? And there, where, where? You wake up every morning, you come down for coffee, and what's sitting there? The Ark of the Covenant in your living room. You, you couldn't even see it without dying. You couldn't even, but in this case, God is going to allow it to be in this guy's house. It's incredible to me. The presence of God. Only the high priest could go in there once a year and put blood on top of the mercy seat. And now it's going to be parked in your living room? You're sitting there and you have to live your life with that thing right there. Wow. Well, you do realize the New Testament truth, don't you? That this is a symbol of your chest where the Holy Spirit now resides in the fullness of who he is, the Godhead. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, do you not realize that Christ is in you? And that was the whole point, the whole point. But we don't live in fear, but we should live in some kind of reverent holiness to know, wow, in my living room, in my kitchen, in every part of my, my private life, the presence of the Lord is with me. It's not just here at church where I'm so well behaved. <laughs> it's at home, in the heart, where you live, where you let down your hair, if you have any. <laughs> and, and, and we do so in love because of the mercy seat. And so uh, they don't want to deal with this thing. It, it wasn't a real blessing to them because of how they abused it. And so thank you for the slide. It's time to move on. Uh, the ark is going 10 miles north to a, a home, Mr. Abinadab's house. It was a long time, 20 years in all, verse 2, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, <clears throat> and all the people of Israel mourned and sought, sought rather after the Lord. And Samuel said, 
to the whole house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with you, with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and, they, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. Now, pausing there, uh, Roman numeral number two, taking notes, spiritual revival. Now, here we have the turning point where Israel is leaving the dark days of the judges into the time of the kings. Now, there's no tabernacle, right? There's no temple. Uh, it was destroyed at Shiloh. The spiritual uh, life is gone in Israel. It's parked at Abinadab's house for Abinadab only, really. I mean, there's no Judaism. There's 20 years of no holidays, no feasts, and, and Israel is just looking now for a king. Uh, they want the Lord back. This new generation is restless and, and hungry for God again because absence has made the, the heart grow fonder. They lost everything, and now these young people especially are wanting to seek the Lord. So Samuel's going to guide them from the time of judges now in this final phase of repenting, Samuel being the last judge, and now the bridge now to the kings. Now through this last time of repentance, they're going into a much better place uh, with King Saul, uh, not so much with King Saul on his part, but then to King David. And so, first things first, king or no king, you've got to get right with God. And so, uh, the, all of the nation there in verse 2 is mourning. Uh, they're down in the spiritual dumps, and they had good reason for that, didn't they? They were spiritually depressed. Why? Well, their cities were in ruin. Their armies were defeated. They were under the oppression of the Philistines. There was no church ministry. Now, can you imagine as a Christian believer... There's no church anywhere. There's no uh, ability to be taught. You don't hear the word of God. There's no Christian music anywhere. There's no holidays. There's no Christmas. There's no Easter. There's nothing. It's gone. You don't have anything. The tabernacle's been destroyed. The ark's parked at some guy's house. It's 20 years of nothing. Yeah, we used to be Jews, but we don't have a relationship with God. No sacrifices, no word taught, no intercession. Zero, and so they're depressed. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, "A worse enemy that the oppressive, a worse enemy than the oppressive Philistines. God's people were in double bondage: the heavy yoke of the Philistines and the heavier burden of a false worship that crushed the life out of their hearts." So. But in the void and the emptiness and ache came a restlessness and an awakening. So here in verses 3 to 5, you'll see Samuel gives a timeless recipe for spiritual revival and getting right with God. So here Samuel's saying, hey, if this desire for God is legit, then follow these simple instructions 
And notice the phrasing. He says, if you're returning to the Lord. And that in itself really kind of gives you the principle of what Christian life is all about. It's, it's being close to a person. He's not saying, if you're going to start doing the right thing or being religious or getting back into it. No, it's more an understanding. If you're returning, implying that there's been distance between you and the God who loves you and made you. If you're coming back to him, ah, that's the idea. You're, you're not becoming a Christian you're not getting religious. You're not turning your life around. What is this that's stirring in you right now? You are coming back to the God who made you in love, to have a loving relationship with him. That's what it is. Uh, that's the core of that relationship. Uh, John 17, verse 3. Now, this is eternal life, Jesus speaking. This is eternal life, colon, which means I'm defining what eternal life is. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life, to have an experiential, intimate connection with the God of this universe. And that's what it's all about. So he says, if you're returning to him with all your heart, and there's the second thing to think of, I'm coming back to God with all of my heart. No rival loves, not, an, not a divided heart, not half-baked, not like almost all the way faithful, but totally faithful to be intimate with him. What does it mean to love God with all your heart? Here's a quote for you. It means one's affection and worship is focused on God first and foremost, thoughts that acknowledge his presence and submit to his truth, and a will that is driven to please God and to live for his good pleasure alone every day, to be true to him. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the greatest commandment in the Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus said to us that in Matthew 22 and verse 36, that this is the greatest commandment of all. So notice here that the inward was more important than the outward, and, it had to, and, and that had to come first. Uh, this is why Samuel first called Israel to return with all your heart, and then he told them to put away the foreign gods. So it's true. Nobody can see into your heart. Uh, no one uh, knows if you're repenting or not, uh, but because it's kind of a secret place, however, it can be proved whether or not you are repenting by your behavior. So in this case, when the foreign gods go away, we know that Israel's return to her Lord. Uh, now, somebody told me, how can I convince my wife that I'm really sorry and that I really mean it and, and God is really working in my heart? Uh, the answer to that is let your actions and your behavior prove your repentance. The words mean very little. When you repent, we ought to see the change. First, it's in our heart. We return to the Lord. And then from that loving closeness comes 
proof that God is doing something in there because the foreign gods go away and a new life starts. The foreign gods for you are named in verse 4, the Baals and the Ashtoreths. We talked about them before. Essentially, the Baals, the gods that they were uh, worshipped. Uh, uh, Baal was the god of, really, essentially, it comes down to money. It was weather and crops and prosperity. Money, worshiping, and also the asterisks was all about sex. And so it was about money and sex. And as we often smile whenever I say that, because not much has changed in 3,200 years. And so greed and lust was getting in the way of their relationship with God. And Samuel just says, uh, listen, the first commandment is no other gods before him. Commit yourselves, serve God and God alone. Jesus told us that we cannot serve both God and money, and it's the case here as well. And you know what bothers me and kind of haunts me whenever we talk about this subject is because I know full well that I can be talking to you from this platform, and you can be sitting in church on a Wednesday night and not fully be walking with the Lord. Uh, the church at uh, Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus writing to them, he says, you know, I know your works. And he lists a whole bunch of good things. I mean, you're, you're hard workers. You resist falsehood. You expose those who say that they are Christians and are not. And you work for me. And the list goes on and on. And he says, but I hold this one thing against you. You guys have lost your first love. And so it, it's possible for us to be going through the motions and, and not have a fully devoted heart to the Lord. So we have to be careful that we don't just think, well, I'm in church and I read my Bible this morning and yada, yada, yada. You say, but do you love me? Really? Do you really love me more than everything else? In every way, let's just look at today, how you spent the day. You didn't, did you talk to me? You love me so much, you know? When's the last time you really spent time with me? More than a few minutes. Well, you poured out your heart and we were intimate and, and, and we just took some time. And you thought about me. And when's the last time you, you saw that selfish behavior and you died to it? Or that sin that I've been telling you about, please stop doing that. We said, we love the Lord. I'm in church on a Wednesday night. I'm teaching you the Bible. I've been to seminary. That doesn't mean that my heart is aflame with love for God. Nobody knows that. I don't know it about you. You don't know it about me. Our job is to always be aflame, always, always be pressing in. Nobody does it perfectly. We go through seasons, ups and downs, and his grace is sufficient, that's for sure. But what is the reach? The reach is a heart aflame, 100%, to love him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength all the way. Amen? Amen. Thank you. I can turn the page now. So Samuel says, love the Lord with an undivided heart, stop the greed and the lust, serve the Lord and him only, and guess what? So they did. Wow, that's nice. So verse 5, a huge worship service is called, 
at Mizpah. Now, you know, everything about this worship service has significance. So I'm going to tell you right from the start, even the location. Uh, Mizpah in Genesis 31 is where Jacob and Laban separated. And also the gathering place of repenting Israel in Judges chapter 20. So it's known for separation and repentance. And so Samuel says, let's have a great worship service. And the heads of Israel and all the congregation comes uh, to this place. And then this symbolic act of worship kind of strange, isn't it? They gather together. And you know how we do our little things. We At a wedding, you do uh, the unity candle. Or now it's very popular to pour sand into this thing. And, you know, we, all, we have these things that mean things. And, and they did too. And so one of the things they would do is in this situation, they would get together and the worship music would die down and somebody would go up like the pastor and they take a pitcher that was blessed with water and then they pour it out in front of the Lord in the presence. And it meant, oh God, there's no turning back. The water is out of the pitcher. You can't put the water back in. Once it hits the dry Mediterranean ground, it's over. You're not bringing that back in. So what they were saying is this time, you get everything. My whole life is poured out. There's no way, no turning back. I'm, I'm in this thing all the way down to the last drop of who I am. Every last cell is in this with you. No reversing, no going back, and the thing is turned upside down so we didn't leave a quarter of the water in there you know what I mean unfortunately you know just a little for me I'm mostly saved or mostly love the Lord or whatever sorry uh, they they do fasting uh, in other words there's something going on here Lord that's more important than breakfast lunch and dinner, and then fourth, the confession that just says, you know, we're not sorry for if we made some mistakes, you know, it was like, here, we have sinned against you, and here are the sins, and we own them, we take responsibility for them, we confess them, we admit, we agree with you, and we turn from them. That's how you confess. None of this, Lord, if I have made some mistakes, and we all know we have, you know, who hasn't made mistakes? No, that's not confession. Okay, so no surprise to any Christian since now we continue. Uh, the moment their hearts are right um, and God has done a great work, here comes the enemy. Verse 7. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came to attack them. Right when God is getting them all set to go, wow. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb, so just a baby lamb, maybe uh, it had to be more than eight days old, and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. Verse 10, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with, a loud, with loud thunder, against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel 
rushed out at Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Beth Car. Roman numeral number three, uh, the enemy attacks. Now, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Let's talk about this. Whenever you have spiritual revival, Christianity 1A, when God does something in your life and you take one step forward spiritually, you have now alerted the forces of evil. You have become a threat. You weren't a problem when you were out doing your own thing, never talking about God, enamored with the, the God of Baal and Ashtoreth, even today, all caught up in your money and your, sorry, pornography or whatever it is you do or I do, whatever, in our hearts and minds. You're not a threat. You're not a problem. You're already conquered by him, in a sense, you may belong to the Lord, but he's uh, ruling, lowercase r. So why is he going to bother you? The second the Holy Spirit starts filling you up, you're baptized, you get rededicated, you're walking with the Lord, you're talking about God. You're quoting scriptures at work. Do you know how dangerous that is? One scripture into one ear goes into one heart and bam, new life. You're replicating the kingdom of God. You don't even know you're doing it. I had one guy, remember I told you about working at Pepsi? A guy came up to me. I used to see him. Sergio is, was his name. It probably still is. If... <laughs> and we used to meet a lot. He was the Coke guy, and I was the Pepsi guy. And we used to meet at the different stores that we would merchandise. And we would do our things talking to each other. He's on that row and I'm on this row. And we got to know each other. And one day he came up to me and he said, I, with tears, I got to thank you for what you said to me. It has changed my life. And I said, well, what did I say to you? He goes, you know what you said to me. I'm back with my wife. I'm going to this church. I said, you're going to a church? And he said, yeah. I, I said, do you like it? He goes, I, I kind of like it. They sing forever. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's a good church. <laughs> and I said, so what did I say? And he said, you know what I said? I said, I didn't even say anything to you. I want to know what I said. It's important to me. Because I didn't remember sharing the gospel. And I've told you this before. I didn't really like him very much. <laughs> Because he used to make fun of me all the time. Uh, so when we were out merchandising, he would see how slow I was and how quick he was. He'd come in and go, you know, and I was like, and he would do this. One Pepsi bottle, two Pepsi bottles. He would do it in jest, but he got me. You know, one thing about me, I don't, I'm not in a real big hurry. I'm kind of laid back. He told me I walk like I'm on vacation all the time. So I don't even know. I, I'm a dangerous person. I'm dangerous because I, I'm not, even when we're not trying, a word slips out or we act in some kind of agape love and bam, there's Christian witness. And now this guy is off the couch together with his wife 
going to church, and now he's talking about the Lord. So the enemy says, take him out. He's elbowing the other demons on Demon Row. Did you see this? What have you been doing? Look at him. He's on the road with Pepsi guy. You know? You let this happen. And all of you are in the same boat. Be careful. Quote, while the devil is not overtly seen as a regular character, the pages of the Old Testament, he is the power at work behind the enemy nations that seek to destroy Israel. By stirring up enemy nations, the devil wants to stop the Jewish Messiah, the savior of the world, from being born, to stop salvation from coming into the world, and of course to try to prevent the source of his own demise from coming. And so he is the one who's behind that. God's got them all in working order. And they're ready to do his will because God does listen his will through his people. That's the only way he does his will. He does them through our mouth and our hands and our feet and our lives. That's how the kingdom of God advances on this earth. Therefore, Satan in the Hebrew, it means to stand against or to oppose or to be the enemy or adversary. In fact, wherever you see and somebody resisted somebody or, or uh, opposed, the word is Satan. It, it just means to oppose, and that's his name. That's what he does. And so why does he oppose you? Because he's opposing him and his kingdom. And his, him and his kingdom is where? The ark. Where did it go? It went into your chest. Now where's the target? On your chest. What's the remedy? Walk with the Lord in the power and strength of his might. Be alert. Be aware. Your enemy, the devil, rolls, around, rolls around <laughs> like a roaring, roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in your faith. And so, you know, Christianity 1A when, I, when God wants to use me, the devil wants to re cause me to stop. That doesn't mean stop. It means continue in God's armor to do the right thing. Uh, verse 7, the Philistines there under Satan's prompting, no doubt, hear the worship service going on at Mizpah, and they think mistakenly, what a bunch of crybabies. Oh, they're all at a worship service. They're all crying. Uh, what a bunch of wimps. Let's get them now. They're all humbled. They're crying out. They're weeping. They're at church. Now's the time to get them. But that is the worst strategy in the world. They were dead wrong about that. You know, the Arabs were also um, dead wrong about trying to attack the Israelites on Yom Kippur, 1973. Nine Arab nations, four non-Middle Eastern countries, 13 nations against one nation on their most holy day, the size of New Jersey against 13 nations. 
and God intervened and Israel won. That's just the way it is. And Israel always wins. It doesn't mean Israel always is a good guy. It just means God's got a plan with those people and everybody will stand before God and, and get their just desserts one way or the other. But uh, when it comes to God's uh, nation, he's keeping things going straight uh, in line. Verse 7, uh, we see uh, spiritual strategy. So Roman numeral number 4, spiritual strategy for a physical threat. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says, For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So here's what happens through 8 through 10. Israel sees the Philistines are getting into military positions to kill them. And they are rightfully afraid. <laughs> But they cry out to their high priest. The high priest offers a lamb and intercedes on their behalf. Notice they're not running after to get the ark of God like they did before. Now they want the God of the ark. And so the battle really is over before it actually begins. Uh, we see their faith, of course. Listen to this. They're calling out to the high priest, who, of course, is Jesus Christ. And then he grabs a lamb. And they're going to be saved because of this offering of the lamb. And who's interceding? The, the high priest. And again, that's Jesus Christ who intercedes. Uh, listen to this quote here. Think of that poor little suckling lamb who had never hurt anyone, never sinned itself, had its throat slit, its blood poured out, its body cut up, and its carcass burned. Why? Because Samuel and Israel were saying, this is what we deserve. This is the punishment that should come upon us. We thank you, God, for accepting the punishment of this innocent lamb instead. We trust in the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 1 and verse 29. And we say the same thing. And so what a winning combination. Listen to what has gone on from the beginning. This inner devotion, undivided heart, outer repentance, getting rid of the false gods, uh, putting their faith in the, the lamb that is slain, calling out to the high priest, not because of what uh, we've done for him, but what he's done for us. Of course, the thunder's going to roll, and the Lord is going to answer and fight for Israel. In verse 9, I really like this, another quote. Perhaps if Christians understood where their real power lie, they would spend more time in prayer and petition and getting right with God and less time and energy trying to work out their challenges with their own power, their own understanding, and with their own manipulations. Listen, you've got prayer. You've got getting right with God. You've got fasting. You've got friends who will pray. You've got prayer chains. There are spiritual weapons, but we look at those at the, at the last, at the bottom. And we spend so much time getting uh, consulting advice and, and trying to fix the problem in our own strength. Well, I'll tell her to tell him, and then I have a friend who can do this. And, and all day long, scheming, 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 instead of using spiritual weapons that God has given us. Look what they did. 
When you do the spiritual part, not to say that you don't have to do the physical part, but when you get everything lined up like that, you're going to get thunder from heaven. You're not going to have to do all your manipulations. God will do the work for you. So verse 9, why do the Philistines panic when they hear the thunder? Because there weren't any storm clouds. It was a blue sky day, and God is thundering. Where's the storm? There's no storm. That's why they're crazy. And here's the fun fact of it all. The god Baal, Baal, he was often pictured as a statue with a lightning bolt in his hand because he was the god of weather, you see? So now that Israel got her, her heart right with God, it's as if the Lord is saying through the thunder, let me now show you who really the God of thunder is. And so just really nice little uh, sarcastic way God has about him. So by the way, uh, the Lord is saying, I don't need clouds or weather patterns to thunder. And so Israel routed those bad boys and they fled for their lives. Let's finish up and we're done. Verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying what this actual word means. Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns of Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the power of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit, a ministry trip, uh, from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also judged Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. So you have spiritual revival, attack of the enemy, spiritual strategy, and now last, building faith. Now you'll remember, as we've seen before, that when the Lord would bring Israel through something miraculous, they would find a way to memorialize that victory. So uh, Samuel knows these people will need some reminders, so he gets a boulder, and uh, in verse 12 there, he names the stone, the memorial, uh, Ebenezer, which means God is my help, or uh, up, to, up until now, God has brought us this far, and he will see us the whole way. That's the meaning. Now, in 1758, Robert Robinson wrote a song that we sing a lot here, Come Thou Fount. And as I've told you, this is the verse that inspired that hymn to be so uh, well-loved that it, re it remained hundreds of years, that we're still singing it. I don't think he was thinking hundreds of years from now people are going to be singing my song that I wrote. He said there, uh, here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. That's exactly what it means. His God's past work is a pledge of future help. Now, the problem with us is we all have spiritual Alzheimer's, which means with each new challenge, 
All previous interventions of God are suddenly and significantly lost from sight as if they never happened. And that's too bad because you have to reinvent your faith so often. As soon as the big next big thing comes, you have to go through the whole thing again. Totally panicked as if God didn't do anything in your life before. Now, here's my counseling strategy, and maybe a few of you have heard me do it. If you come to me as a Christian, panicked, I usually say the same thing. And the first thing I'll suggest is give me three nasty challenges God has helped you with in the past. So the person will will think, and then they'll say something like, okay, well, first, my mother died when I was 13. Well, tell me about that. What happened there? Well, my father became a Christian and then brought us to church. And then I got saved in the youth group. And my heart was filled with peace during those years. And all these ladies became like a mom to me. I go, okay, give me another real big one. All right. Uh, Well, I was in a skiing accident and broke a couple bones and I was laid up a month. Well, tell me about it. Now you were a Christian. How did God work through that? Well, the doctor said it could have been way worse, and I just missed a nerve by just a little inch there. And uh, someone in the hospital started coming to church with us. I, I got disability, and I made it through. And now they're getting this fond look on their face. They're just remembering, and they're starting to smile, and they're just saying, yeah, that was a good time. I mean, I saw the hand of the Lord and how he used it. Now, give me one more. Come on. Well, I got fired from my dream job once. What happened there? Well, I was forced to go back to school, and when I went back to school, I said, Didn't, isn't that where you met your wife? Oh, you met your wife because you lost your dream job. Yeah, isn't that funny how smiling, isn't that funny how God uses those things? He's smiling, confident, happy. He's giving me three testimonies of how God came through in miraculous ways, in situations that were very, very tough. And so then I have to say, you know, well, what do you think? Um, What do you think about God probably doing what he's done in the past, now with this problem. And it's like, Pastor Ross, <laughs> kind of like, you led me, you've deceived me <laughs> into this. Uh, but it's true. Now, folks, live long enough, and you're going to have to experience some trouble. Uh, you may have to be broke. I think it, almost everybody in this room probably has been broke at one time, and at the worst possible time. <laughs> Uh, Without a job, you may have to lose a loved one. Okay, you will lose a loved one. You will get a phone call. You will become the object of that phone call as well. Sorry. And then you won't have any worries, though. (laughs) Uh, you, You may have to have a friend turn on you. A friend. Just go sideways and start talking smack about you. Making stuff up. You may have to have a serious illness. Someone might break your heart. When the nasty challenge comes your way, you will remember that the God who's brought you safe thus far will be forever yours. The cool thing about getting older, now in my 50s, almost mid-50s, you 
you've got a lot of Ebenezers to choose from. I could, you know what? Here's the sign of a mature Christian. I'm wrapping things up now, just if you're wondering. I saw a couple of looks on faces. The sign of a mature Christian. You turn off your cell phone before service. Amen. Failed there. <laughs> All right, listen. Uh, you know you're a mature Christian when you skip the panic stage completely and go straight to the trusting stage, the petitioning with thanksgiving and getting the peace that passes understanding to guard your hearts. Then you know, you know what? I'm growing. I'm getting there. For great is your love reaching to the heavens, your faithfulness stretches to the skies. So that chapter ends happy. Uh, each year he's going around to three different cities and teaching the word and giving counsel and hearing cases. Uh, Samuel is acting as a rescuer judge during his lifetime. He finishes well, the enemy subdued. Verse 14, Israel even helps the Amorites against the common enemy, the Philistines. It's been like that all night with my mouth. It's all right, I'm used to it. Uh, and now they're allies. Let me close with a Warren Wiersbe quote, and then we're done. Whenever God's people depend on their own plans and resources, their efforts fail and bring disgrace to God's name. But when people, God's people trust the Lord and pray he meets their need, when, when, people, when God's people trust the Lord and pray, comma, he meets their needs and he receives the glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for First Samuel 7 and all the wonderful truths here that just we need to be reminded of. Uh, take these truths and put them way deep in our hearts and call them up by the power of the Holy Spirit when, in our time of need. In Jesus' name, amen.